the gear is there, but the limitation is just that there's this fear of the unknown and and that is never going to get solved. And then, um, so people will sort of always over, you'll always see people overpacking because you're never going to solve that. Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast with a special topics podcast this week, this time on ultra lightweight backpacking and gear. We have two esteemed guests who are experts in this subject to give us a few tips and tricks for the multi-day or at least the long day FKT attempt. Right here next to me is Andrew Skirka. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, glad to be back. Yes. And remotely, we have Alan Dixon. Good to have you, Alan. Nice to be with you as well. And excited. Uh, this is my first one. Well, terrific. Maybe not the last. And you've been doing this for a long time, Alan. And you have Adventure Alan as your website with tons of articles and information on how to do this. This will be in the written show notes. So I don't, I guess, spell it all out, but the listeners can go to the written show notes and see adventureallen.com and andrewskirka.com because you guys have a very, very strong background in this. I made the comment to Buzz um, Allen that uh, Hughes said, you know, I think we'd like to get some kind of some historical perspective on, on lightweight backpacking. And, and I laughed and I was like, yeah, wow, it's kind of, it's, it was a little shocking to think that, yeah, I almost have like two decades of experience with this now. <laughs> and, and you're about the same. Yeah, I'm, a, yeah, I'm about the same as, is right. Yeah, back when we were sewing our own gear and making do with all sorts of strange things to try and get gear that's so, so readily available now. Right. Uh, you guys were pioneers and now you don't have to be a pioneer. You just have to go online and buy stuff. But still, there's some things that people could and should be doing. But let's just do a, a quick catching up here. Alan, didn't one time you tell me that you helped found backpacking light? I did. I did. Ryan Jordan and I met on a ridge sneaking into the Tetons the back way um, back in 2001. And uh, we met for the first time and they're like, don't don't go meet him in the backcountry. He's like from Montana. He's going to have a gun and a shovel. He's going to bury you somewhere. But quite the opposite. It just it ended up blossomed into a, a friendship and a collaboration to start Backpacking Light. Right. And that's been the mouthpiece for it really kind of pushed the envelope. I think that envelope got bigger and bigger. So now a lot of people are doing it. And then, Andrew, I remember you back in the Go Light days, you did some big trips. You did you walked across the country. But before that, you did kind of an intro trip on the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> yeah, intro trip. That's good. Yeah, so 2002 was my first I found my first uh, like real packing trip, and um, I started did the Appalachian Trail. I squeezed it between uh, two semesters. I was still in college at the time, and uh, you know, like just for perspective, in two thousand two, that was three years after Golight was founded, and Golight was like the first company that was ever dedicated to lightweight backpacking gear. And uh, there just wasn't the, the gear wasn't there and no one sort of knew how to like, we were just kind of still figuring out how to do it. And, um, it wasn't widely embraced that like people were very skeptical. So I started the Appalachian Trail, like most other people with a lot of gear. How um, much? 
it's funny. I was actually just looking at this gear list the other day because I was looking through files and found it. And I was like, oh, what's, what's, what, what kind of laughs can I have over this one? Well, my backpack alone weighed seven and a half pounds. Just the, just the backpack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then it went up from there. Uh, I think it ended up being like the base pack weight was like in the mid thirties, uh, maybe 40. And then, um, you know, add in some food and water. It was heavy. I, I remember the first, I remember the first day thinking that I'd covered like 20 miles. I think I did like 12. I was, and I was, <laughs> it was, it was humbling. I was like, you know, I was a division one athlete and I just got crushed. Right. Well, let's just say, did you, by the way, did you finish the AT in 2002? I, I did finish. The oh, trail, you finished it. But it, it took a, it was a, it took, you know, it required me to change the whole approach. So there was almost nothing that I started the Appalachian Trail with that I finished with. Okay. Well, let's go to what you finished with then and we'll leave the, what you started with part alone for now. And let's talk about what's the point. You know, backpacking light, in my opinion, tends to fo- overly focus on the weight. It's like, no one's having any fun. They're not doing anything interesting. They're just trying to see how little they can, their pack weighs. That's not really the point. The point is to have more fun, make it more easy, and in terms of FKT action, to make it a little faster. But in my opinion, easier and faster are basically the same thing. Um, well, no, I think that you have a choice, right? Um, I mean, you could make a trip easier by by carrying less. You could also make it faster by carrying less but not fast trips typically aren't easy well that's true yeah. fast trips aren't easy yeah, so you might have to pick but it definitely makes life easier if you're carrying less it makes right. it more enjoyable yeah right yeah gives you I, options but there you is just, but there's a limit to that you know at some point you're carrying too little that you become less effective um you know and i think that's sort of where you know you need to investigate is like you know at some point, you know, if you're carrying gear that's so delicate that you're coddling it or you don't have an essential piece of gear that you need to do a particular thing, then you become inefficient. Um, you know, or somebody, you know, one of my pet peeves is like these super ultralight shelters that have like 13 guy lines. Like who in their right mind wants to set up 13 guy lines every night? That's not <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, even if you had the footprint and non-rocky ground to put them in. But, you know, you know, so the shelter weighs a pound, big whoop. You know, you just spent, you know, 30 minutes setting it up that you could have been walking on the trail. Right. Oh, 30 minutes would be a killer for sure. So th- there's a couple of factors here in terms of finding that balance. And you guys, you know, kick in on this. You just mentioned inefficiency. And so something is so lightweight that you could just rip it or it takes a while to deal with it that becomes inefficient but another one of course is safety if you just go total minimalist and it snows which it sort of can happen in the mountains it can be a safety hazard yeah i think i think you're i think both of those are right and alan i i think you're probably in the same boat too but i've been on the both ends of that where I've, I've not in, taken things intentionally or mistakenly and it cost me, like it got me into trouble. So for example, uh, like I definitely have like not taken a fleece mid layer and have got caught in like cold wet conditions. And that's like, so you have a hiking shirt and a rain jacket and maybe like a wind shirt. And if it's cold and wet, that's miserable without, without a fleece. Um, and then I also have, uh, you know, taken things where, um, it just sort of like was, 
as you said, like inefficient. So I used to be a proponent of foam sleeping pads because they were lighter. But with the sleeping pads that are out there now, it's like, yeah, they weigh a little bit more than a foam pad. But I mean, you're sleeping on two and a half, almost three inches of air. You're, you're, so, you're talking about the, the Thermarest NeoAir. Yeah, the NeoAir, the Axle Insulated, or yeah. yeah, any of those. Yeah, So you're, so, you're getting a much better night's sleep. Well, let's just let me quick interject in case your listeners aren't familiar with it. So the foam pads have been used for decades, 50 years probably. But the, I mean, use a brand name, the NeoAir, you inflate it, you blow it up, but it also has some baffles in it and some reflective cells in it. So it does a little radiative insulation. But it's too, too. Yeah, you actually. It does a lot more than a little. I mean, that, yeah, you know, the Thermarest NeoAir Women's is like an R5.4. It's like it's like three times the insulating value of a foam pad, not to mention it's more comfortable. Hmm. Okay. All right. So you're, you're, this is a good example. So with the, the modern uh, pads that are inflatable, you add a little weight. You're adding like mm-hmm. four ounces or something like that, but right. you're adding a tremendous amount of comfort and warmth, insulative warmth from the cold ground. Right. Okay. Right. So that's, so that's, and this is what Alan was referring to earlier. This, um, there's this point at which if the lighter you go, you just start making all sorts of compromises. So I, I think the sweet spot for, for anyone who wants to have like an enjoyable backcountry experience is to sort of look at what the limit is and then take a step back or two from the limit. And you'll be really comfortable there, um, and you won't have to make that many compromises. Okay. All right. The only other thing I would add that is if you're going to test limits, <laughs> test it in your backyard or, or a half a mile from the car. Do not test limits at 12,000 feet from and you know 30 miles from the nearest tra- trailhead. It's not a good place to test limits. So if you're going to go up in the mountains this summer, right now it's, it's March, you could go out in your backyard if you're in a temperate climate and just sleep outside a couple of nights when it's 20 degrees out, and that's a good way to test. I exactly used to, so. Yeah. I used to do that actually all the time when I was like figuring things out, when it was like, okay, well, like I remember um, like prior to like my Alaska trip, like I would like take my sleeping bag, my sleeping pad, and go outside on the coldest nights and say like, all right, is this going to, am I going to be warm enough? Um but, and I did exactly the same in, in D.C. You know, we'd get a forecast temperature like in, you know, three degrees on the Blue Ridge. And I would head out in my car and go sleep out on the Blue Ridge and see, you know, what I could get by with at that temperature range. But, you know, again, I was maybe five miles from the car. So if anything went wrong, I could just walk out and go home. Great. So you test the limits in a reasonably safe environment rather than on your actual project. That's a good idea. I want to go back to something I mentioned that we didn't really carry through with entirely is the, the one of the reasons for going light to begin with. To me, if you're hiking, of course, you're, you're lifting your weight up with every step. Now, if you're running, you're doing more than that. The difference between a hiking and a running stride is dramatic to me. So if you're doing any running at all, weight on your back is fantastically important. It, it compounds incredibly. And so to get your weight down, if there's even a jogging downhill aspect to it, is, is very important. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think there's certain, I think there's certain pieces of gear that I'm going to, I'm going to open the subject of fear. Um, and, you know, one of the, 
But in most circumstances, like a tarp or a pyramid shelter that would weigh eight ounces to a pound, is every bit as effective in most instances to protect you from the weather. And if you get to the point of what you're talking about, it's like, I need to run with this pack, or I need to maintain like a, you know, a 3.7 mile an hour hiking pace, that weight really matters. And that opportunity there exists for everyone. This is not, this is not stupid light. This is like intelligent, practical light, but people are just unwilling to go there because they're afraid that the shelter, like the pyramid shelter, the tarp is not a true shelter, that somehow they're not going to be okay in it. Their fear kicks in and controls and rules that option out for them. Okay, so one could um, up the skill level is, is what you might be saying. Well, I, I skill. I was, Alan, I was just thinking what you're saying, and, and that's kind of where we are right now with, with backpacking gear. That um, So the, you can actually like walk into REI, and you can buy a two-and-a-half-pound pack, and you can buy a pound-and-a-half shelter, like that, you know, like that new uh, REI shelter that they just came out with. You can buy a 12-ounce sleeping pad. You can buy uh, you know, lightweight water bottles and what, what, lightweight water purification, lightweight sleeping bags. But yet people especially beginners don't like we're still you still go out to like a national park and people are still like generally like overpacking significantly and i think what we're seeing it's we're up like the gear is there but the limitation is just that there's this fear of the unknown and and that is never going to get solved and then um so people will sort of always over you'll always see people overpacking because you're never going to solve that I would, uh, that was the point I was trying to make. And I think that's, I think that the fear is the greatest impediment to people going lighter. It's, it's not the gear. And these people might even have the techniques, like, but they're, they're just afraid they can't do it. And so they just, they go ultra conservative on their gear choices. Okay, well, let's look at a few things that might help. And you mentioned shelters. That's a really good place to start. Uh, you two both on your websites, which will be in the show notes, have extensive articles on systems, gear lists. It's an amazing resource. Um, but let's see if we can just touch on this a little bit. There's obviously the tent, and then there's the tarp, and then there's the bivy. So you kind of have the, the, the normal and then somewhat lightweight, and then you have the super minimal. But I think you two are largely tarp-type people, and you tend not to carry classic tents, except in extreme climates. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, basically, my my default thing for the Sierras is to, to cowboy camp in a bivy, and I'll have a tarp somewhere in my pack in case it rains, but I'm basically sleeping on and enjoying the stars. Um, not only is it lighter... But it has, you know, I mean, you just throw the thing down and you're ready to sleep and you just pick it up in the morning and you're ready to go. So it has the the built-in efficiency of, of that. And then it's such a small footprint. You can put it almost anywhere. You don't need to stake it out. You know, it's it's hugely advantageous. Okay. Um, that, that's what I would use for like Utah or the Sierras or... I mean, I weathered a blizzard in the Tetons in 2003, a two-day blizzard, underneath a tarp. Right. But you use the tarp. It wasn't – you can't – basically, if it rains, bivvies don't work in the rain. 
They do not. Yeah, it's not a system that you want to regularly be using. So if you're going to use Tarpon Bivy, it's going to be um, – it's kind of a just-in-case shelter. So you're going to use the Bivy every night, but the tarp hopefully you don't have to set up and hopefully don't have to trust. Okay, now and a quick note. The tarp means you're using trekking poles, generally right. speaking. It doesn't ha- – you're not carrying ex- additional poles. You're Correct. using your trekking poles. That's a big weight savings right there, assuming you are using trekking poles, which almost everyone is or should be doing. So you save weight right there, and then you basically pup, tent, stake it down, yeah. so to speak. Right. But, Alan, you know, we should be clear, too. I mean, we're, we're actually not, um, you know, it, like all of these shelters have their own place. So, um, like, we also uh, regularly use, like, pyramid-style shelters. Like, when we go up to Alaska, where it's, like, so this right. summer we're, we're going to be up in the Brooks Range again, and it's going to be June, and we definitely could get hit with a storm, and it's going to be buggy. Um, Tarp and Vivi doesn't really belong up there, so the Pyramid Shelter does great. And then if, uh, like, when we're in West Virginia in May, we're going to bring hammocks. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Not, Absolutely. That's because the ground's too moist? Uh, oh, I mean, there's more than that. It's the, Alan, you want to you wanna go there? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like there's nothing but trees and sloping rocking ground. I mean, there are very <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> few available campsites, and the hammock takes that out of the equation. And you just got to find two trees, you hang it up, you get the same night's great night's sleep every night. Um, and, you know, even if we're at a campground with an established campground, if we're guiding with 10 clients, there's, there's rarely room for 10 tents um, to get the hammocks in among the trees. And that, I mean, you could get us started, but yeah, we're both, I mean, if you're hiking the AT or anywhere on the East Coast, uh, the hammock's the way to go. Interesting, yeah. And let me, this kind of highlights a broader point, which is that, so, um, with, with whatever your backpacking style is, your, your kit should be, should be optimized for the likely conditions. So if you are, if you're going to be in, say, Yosemite in July, your kit is a little bit different than if you're in Yosemite in September. And your kit in, in Yosemite generally is going to be a little different than if you're like in the Colorado Rockies. Um, and then the East Coast is something totally different. So that's one of the things that we always try to emphasize is that you, know, you there aren't like hard rules about what you should and shouldn't carry um, because a lot of it is uh, regionally adjusted and like based on location, season, uh, even like the trip objective. Uh, like I pack differently when I'm out with my wife than I do if I'm out solo uh, or if I'm with a group. It's all sort of like little variations. I suspect it. And, you know, and I, Allison and I were down on the southern Patagonia ice field this January and you know, the winds there can routinely blow 100 miles an hour. So we're, you know, we're down there in the lightest Everest quality tent that we can get, uh, you know, out on the out on the ice. Um, you know, there happened to be a five pound tent, but that's half the weight of any other tent that anybody had seen down there. Hmm. So you, you can pack regionally, but you can pack lighter regionally than most people. Right. Uh, half the weight of what most people are using and twice the weight of what you use somewhere else. So this is a good takeaway. There's no one recommended sleep shelter system. That's just crazy. It depends on the conditions, depends on the season, and depends on your objectives for that trip. So sorry, folks, there's no easy takeaway here. But, well, maybe one of the takeaways is you got to think about it. you got to really figure this out and look at what your objectives are and what the conditions will be. Exactly. I mean, I see people out on, I'm near the Appalachian Trail, and I see people out in high summer on the Appalachian Trail with a four to five pound mountaineering tent 
and a plus 20 sleeping bag. Yeah. Just in and case. Just in case, Alan. Just in case. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, 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 the, and the forecast for the next five days is for no rain. Right. And they're sweltering. Uh, well, let's, let's, let's go in the other direction now. Something we mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, which is safety. It can go the other direction. Andrew mentioned something. I think we've all experienced oops, being underclothed and having not enough. And so is that the same answers before, which is look at the weather report, figure this out, calculate what the conditions will be and then what you'll need to meet them safely. And again, I think this goes back to testing your gear, having some idea, especially with your clothing and your sleep system about what works and what conditions. Otherwise, you're kind of guessing because especially like sleeping, I mean, there are people that sleep really hot and there are people that sleep really cold. You know, I had a we had a client that got up one morning and kind of almost keeled over because she'd been so cold overnight and she just completely, you know, underestimated the amount of warmth she needed from a sleeping bag. Hmm. Yeah, and I think with you know with your audience in particular, so like when you're when you're like you need to know what the limits are of your gear because then you can you can be very strategic about the things that you take and or don't take. Um, and I think when you're like when you're attempting like some very ambitious itinerary, whether that be an FKT or whether it be like a high route, which is just going to be like physically exhausting, um, or even like a, a through hike, which is going to be less intense but longer, um, you want to be kind of threading that needle closely. Um, you want to be like just on the edge of sort of like your comfort and safety and like having just enough margin, but you don't, it's, you don't want to be, you don't want much margin. Right. In other words, if that occurs, if you're guiding, if you two are both guides, you want a huge margin. <laughs> That's your professional responsibility. Yeah. And if you're on a family trip, you want a good margin. But if you're out right. just for yourself going for an FKT, you're going to cut it close. Right. Yeah, and that's closer. Closer. You know, I think there's a closer. I mean, I, you know, a couple of things that over the time I've I've scrimped less and less on, and that's one having a, a comfortable sleeping bag, a comfortable pad, and a warm sleeping bag and a warm down jacket. Um, one, you know, the increase in warmth for a few extra ounces of down is astronomical, and you know, there's no substitute for getting sleep when you need it. Or when you're at a rest stop or around camp, not freezing your ass off. Um, so those are those are things that at least I personally don't cut the corners on as much as I used to. Yeah, and I would echo that. Whereas I'm a little, like also cutting fewer corners, and that's an area of clothing. I just feel like in my like you know, a decade ago, I was I just getting shut down too often by inclement weather, and you know. Uh, an extra half pound or pound of clothing. I mean, that could buy you an extra like several hours of hiking time. Um, like you just take like sleeping clothes. So if you take, you know, if you have uh, say 10 or 12 ounces of sleeping clothes, that's a, a dedicated pair of clothing or like a top and bottom that you're going to, that you only use for sleeping. So that allows you to get your hiking clothes soaking wet. And you know, when you pull into camp, you can rip all that stuff off and put on your sleeping clothes. Like that buys you like several hours worth of time in some some instances, um, and so it's kind of a no brainer. Um, it just it's a good investment of weight. Nice. Yeah. To sort of sum that up, that that sleeping and clothing system really needs to be dialed, and it's it's you know it's kind of like the last place you want to skimp. 
Okay. Uh, well, here's I, our, I would skip. I would skimp on a shelter and a bunch of other things before I'd skimp on those. Interesting. Well, the last question in the sleep shelter system came in from a listener in advance, and they were wondering about this quilt versus mummy bag thing, which I've sort of wondered about too. Some of the hardcore through hikers like the quilt, which means it's something you just lay on top. You don't zip yourself into it. To me, that seems kind of strange. I don't see the point in that since you get a lot of cold air gaps there. But how are you two coming down on the mummy bag, classic mummy bag versus the quilt? I'll open up. I'm a huge quilt advocate. I haven't slept other than to test gear. I haven't slept in a sleeping bag in over 10 years. And that includes like a winter backcountry ski trip um, in the Beartooths. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm, see, I, I'm actually becoming like a, I, sorry, I'm like a, I, I'm all, I don't want to say a skeptic, but just less um, enamored with quilts. Or uh, when you look at the weight of um, mummy bags, which have dropped pretty dramatically, um, it just, I'm like, well, for an extra couple of ounces, you get a hood and a zipper <laughs> and no drafts. Um, well, you're an old guy. You're like 30 now. Right? I am. Well, 38. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I just, but, I, but it didn't used to be the case. And I think this is one of those like interesting things that you kind of need to like look at it look at it now rather than like what the conventional wisdom has been because there was a time where and Alan you know you could speak this because you're on scene too but like you couldn't get really a lightweight like a good lightweight sleeping bag like a good lightweight mummy bag so quilts were fantastic fantastic because you could they had no zipper saving a huge amount of weight they didn't have all the complexities of a hood um you could sew it yourself so uh, it was like simple in that regard so quilts kind of took on this like Mystique. Yeah, mystique. And like, and they were like, they, they worked for that time because there wasn't anything better. But now with where the technology is, I'm like, eh, it seems like a marginal gain. Like a, it's, it's a marginal weight decrease or marginal weight, um, um, marginal, uh, yeah, decrease in weight if you have a quilt. But you're like giving up quite a bit. I, I'm going to push back on that. I think this is great. We have different opinions. I think it's great for the readers. Um, I'm actually an engineer, um, and I've actually done all the stats and, and sort of looked at these things. And, you know, for, for one thing, a quilt of equivalent warmth is about half the cost of the same down sleeping bag. Half the cost? Cost. Half, half the cost. And it weighs less, probably about, you know, depending on it, but, you know, 20, 20, 30% less, and it's half the cost. Okay. Well, the, uh, I like it. Like you said, Alan, a d- divided opinion on this, we let listeners decide for themselves, run the numbers. I'd want to see Alan's numbers. <laughs> I'm just... I, I've got them. They're coming out. I have, I have the numbers. And I think you um, could probably cherry pick to get those, but. Um, no, nope. not sure that's a nope. Awesome. Nope. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll, I, I can't wait to see it, Alan. Okay, Alan, you can uh, email those in, and so we can put. If you have that in an article, we'll put, we'll link to your article on the show notes. Okay. Okay. Um, it's okay. coming. All right. I'm okay. working on it. You're working okay. on it. Um, moving right along. Here's an always a fun question, if it can be answered. What cool innovations, gear, or technique, or otherwise? Have you seen just in the last five years? What, of course, you already mentioned the inflatable foam pad, not foam pads, inflatable sleeping pads, not foam. 
That you already said that. What other cool things have happened? Alan, why don't you take one and then I'll take one. We could probably go back a few times. Yeah, I mean, I think well, we broached on one that that Andrew and I actually agree on, and I'm I'm really hoping to see hammock camping or hammock tent camping, as it's now called, come into its own. Mm. I think it's a a highly underrated. I mean, hammocks have obviously been around forever, and um, you know, Hennessy spearheaded them and got them into REI, but now there's a huge number of hammock vendors and. You know, I think it's the, the perfect way to sleep on one of our three major trails, the Appalachian Trail. Um, and we we actually primarily use them when we're guiding in the Rockies, in Rocky Mountain National Park. So I think people are, it's an underutilized tool that's just ripe for the picking. Um, um, my mine would be um, Dyneema Composite Fabric, hmm. um, or formerly known as Cuban. So this is a, uh, that's way I think about um, DCF is if you take like a grid of spectra thread and then pour like a painter's plastic type of mixture onto it and let it harden, that's basically what you get. So you end up with something that's like extremely waterproof, very like no stretch, uh, extremely tough, and it's and it weighs a so it, and it, like compared to the standard uh, waterproof coated nylon fabrics, you're looking at it's like half the weight. And something that's actually more waterproof, right? So it's it changed shelters dramatically. Interesting. Well, yeah. DCF is an odd name because it's not a fabric. Uh, it's not knit or not woven. I guess it still could t- could be called a fabric. But like you say, they they don't use a knitting or a weaving machine to make it at all. Okay. Formerly called, in case people uh, are wondering, formerly called Cuban fiber. Now, right? And, and Andrew and I probably you know any tarp or or pyramid tent that I own is made out of that. Um, and it just, it has huge advantages. Uh, it just in terms of, it doesn't stretch. So once you get your shelter pitched out, um, you know, if you get rain or something, you don't have to retighten all the stakes, like get out in the rain and deal with it. It's, it's, it's a phenomenal fabric. Okay. Except for one thing, Ellen. And what is that? It is insane expensive. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Although in a tarp, it's reasonable. I mean, I think, you know, a tarp is, is probably the, the best application for the fabric. And you can cut your Cuban farp, I mean, DCF tarp for, you know, a couple hundred bucks. And you can get a pretty big one, which will give you a lot of coverage. And that's a really great opportunity to get an incredibly light shelter for not a lot of money. So I should note that uh, I agree. DCF is a great fabric, but a piece of visqueen of the same size would cost like seven ninety nine. <laughs> and and try setting that up in a thunderstorm at twelve thousand feet, and tell me how you like it. Um, all right, Alan, go ahead, hit us with another one. Um, I think the I think the one of the things that I think is that's that's added to the safety um, the backcountry is the Garmin inReach. Um, the mini, the three ounce thing that you can carry in your pocket. It's incredibly sophisticated. Um, Andrew and I use them, uh, between guides and to communicate on, with the ground teams when we're in Alaska. Um, I think it's something that any person, especially people that are doing high risk trips like FKTs, it, it should be standard equipment. 
I agree. That was actually going to be my next one. Yeah. Right. A good call, Alan. That was part of our Gear of the Decade podcast about five podcasts ago. And as you said, I just want to vocalize that again. Everyone should carry a a Delorme Garmin. Delorme sold out to Garmin a couple years ago. Mini. And it's super lightweight. The Spot, of course, was the predecessor. and Everyone had a Spot. But the Mini is way more functional. And it's even lighter weight. So let me you know, and the nice thing I like about that is also, you know, it's, you know, it doesn't, it gets around all the awkwardness. Like if you want to just like drop your pack and go off on, on a, on a, like a small peak bag or something, you can just throw it in your pocket. So it, the, the ability to keep it all the way with, always with you is, is incredibly important because if you don't have it on you, it's not doing you any good. And the number of stories of people like getting into trouble and it's like, oh, it was back there attached to my pack. Right. Okay. Good call. So next on this list, I would put um, broadly um, this, the GPS smartphone app, um, specifically uh, Gaia GPS, which has um, just made the – it's given you another purpose for the smartphone. So now your smartphone, it's, it's entertainment. It's your video camera. Um, it's uh, – and now it's your – like it can be a – I still recommend it as like a backup navigation device, but it's a it's a really powerful backup, um, and you can certainly use it as a primary too. Although there's some maybe some uh, risk issues with that. The Gaia, and I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that a little bit. I've been using Gaia as my primary um, tool since pretty much it was in beta, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna push back and say that is my primary navigation tool, and the maps stay in my pack. So Alan, I actually had an interesting experience last summer. Um, we, uh, last minute we pulled a different permit in Yosemite and, uh, so, and we were going, so originally we were planning on going north of, uh, Tioga road and we were going to kind of do up like those Northern canyons. But last minute I was able to pull a permit for Lyle Canyon. So we ended up going south of Tioga road and I didn't, the paper maps that I printed out for the groups, uh, were for the, for the other route, but everyone had, uh, their, their um their phones and everyone had like the downloaded maps and i was surprised at like clients were not grasping the topography as quickly as if they had maps i think that if um i think them i think that limited viewing window was a real handicap in them really being able to understand where they were and where they're going um, obviously, you know, someone like you or me who studied the maps beforehand, maybe have like a prior uh, experience in that area. It's a different, um, it's a different thing. But what about me? Uh, well, it would depend on if you know the area well, oh. and if you've like studied the like studied the maps before you before you went. Um, gotcha. But I think for someone who hasn't been there before and who doesn't who didn't really take the time to kind of understand like mm-hmm. the, the the macro of topography, they sort of struggle if they're just looking at a little five inch smartphone screen. The Gaia GPS was also in our Gear of the Decade podcast, was my nomination. And I'm certainly in Alan's category of the maps are a, a backup. But there's an interesting nuance to this, which is something that Andrew said. When I'm laying out a route in advance, I love paper because I can just spread. Like when you and I, Andrew, were doing the Wind River High route on your dining room table, and we had like three feet by six feet laid out with paper maps. It was easy to conceptualize by doing that. But once I get going, the little blinking blue dot works really well. Yeah, so I, yeah, I think, you know, for me, the paper, 
For me, the paper maps, um, I generally use them um, in the evening to write notes on or look at what I'm going to do for the next day. So I, I do use them like that, but I'm, it's pretty much intuitive to me, the use of it. But I think Andrew might, makes a really good point, and I've had this happen, and this might be interesting to the FKT audience. Sometimes you get off route. I mean, you just go off map, and the great thing about Gaia, and anybody that's using it should do this, it's just got a huge hunk of terrain. Um, cause you never know where you're going to end up. When we were, when we were doing our version of the Wind River High Route, we ended up off map for a while. Just, you know, steered us in a way we weren't intending to go. And it wasn't on our paper maps, but I, we had it on Gaia. So we were good. Right. That's interesting. And here's something before we wrap up the Gaia question that I often hear is that, well, what happens if your battery goes dead? And my answer to that is, don't let that happen. <laughs> I've got two answers to that. So if you're with, if you're with someone like when Allison and I go on a trip, my phone is, is the active nav phone. She has another iPhone with the maps on it. Everything, it's in her pack in a waterproof bag and it's off. So wow. you there's your back. phone. You've got a backup phone and, you know, maybe she'll use it at night, but basically that phone is not out at risk during the day. Okay. Um, and then everybody should carry a USB battery with them, you know, and, um, top their phone off every night. And, and there's some, you know, I've got an article on how to save battery life too, but yeah, you're right. There's, there's just no reason. I think the, the more compelling reason is like, you know, what happens if you drop your phone? Ah, okay. That can happen. And that, you know, and that's why you have the paper paper maps, or better yet, if you you know pr prefer to use Gaia because it's more efficient for you, you've got a backup phone if you've got a partner. Okay, good, excellent. Those are five uh, new gear or, or technique innovations. Is there a sixth or a seventh? Not hearing anything. Okay. Um, One thing that sure we, I'm sure if we sat around, we could come up with some more, but I think we hit the highlights. We hit the highlights, yeah. and I will just close by saying something that's just sort of staring us in the face is the smartphone itself. I mean, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's kind of irritating. People are Instagramming from all over the place with causing certain impacts, and people are staring at their phones instead of staring at nature itself. But at some level, the phone is a great safety tool, and it works extremely well. I think the thing I would add is that, I mean, I think the phone capabilities with a, with a camera in them can go both ways. I understand, and I'm annoyed when I'm someplace and there's all these selfie sticks out and, and people are clearly not looking at the view. But, you know, I, I will say that, you know, on the, the very high-end smartphones with the incredible cameras, I've brought home images that are like lead images on posts in my site that wouldn't be there if I didn't have that phone camera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Good. Well, I always had a saying, the best camera in the world is the one in your hand. Because if it's not in your hand, it doesn't matter how good if it is, if it's too heavy and expensive that you left it at home. Well, let's think about... Uh, some closers here. Okay, lightweight gear, help FKTers go faster, easier, and safer. You know, what's what's next? What should we be looking at? What the, if, if someone is gonna 
someone came up to you guys, you can take turns at different for sure, and said, I'm going for the PCT, Pacific Crest Trail. And instead of going supported, which means someone's going to try to meet them, or maybe they are going supported, but certainly self-supported, what would you tell them? I would, um, I would make sure, I mean, you got to work through your systems before you go. Work through your yeah, systems first. It's just, you, you should just start down there at the Mexican no, border and hit it. And yeah, because you're going to be working <laughs> out your systems for the first two weeks and you could just, that could cost you precious time. So I, the way I was just having a conversation with someone the other day about this and they're saying like, well, how do you train for a long distance hike? And I said, well, you know, one of the things you do is like, you know, the physical training. And then um, part of it is like the logistical, um, like the logistical planning. But then there's also this piece about like understanding like how to use your stuff. Um, and that would be like, you know, how to set up your shelter and how to purify water and um, uh, like how to use the guidebook. Um, and there's like, and if you're doing a supported, you'd kind of want to work through all of that stuff too. Like what's going to be the rhythm? What's, you know, who's going to drive and when are we going to meet up? And you don't want to really want to wait to figure that stuff out when you get out there. Okay. And I would add, that's sort of riffing off of what Andrew said. Um, I think mentorship is really important or getting some, getting a you know, more knowledgeable person to maybe, or even just maybe someone to play devil's advocate or a second, you know, take on what you're doing and how you're planning your trip um, is a very valuable resource. And, one of the confusing things with the, the the social media is that I think people get really bad advice. You know, there's just all these forums, and they get they get the shittiest advice from people. Um, so you really kind of have to to get a trusted source. I mean, I think Andrew and I do an amazing job on our guided trips to give people the basics of ultralight or advancing them further, but at least getting good information. Well, I'm going to personally chime in on that social media comment, Alan. I get people asking me all the time, or I see it all the time, about what about this? What about that? And I'm like, dude, did you look at a map? I mean, why are you talking to somebody else? I don't think they even looked at a map. I don't think they've studied the route. They haven't done a thing. Instead, they're posting on social media asking for advice, which, as you said, I think is just bizarre. Yeah, especially on those things that those things that are hard. Um, I just can't like, and I'm just going to speak to like the high routes, which we all have experience with here. Like, I was surprised. Um, it took me a couple of years to figure it out, but you basically can't on-site a high route. Mm. You, it's either if you do, you got to give yourself like lots of extra margin because they're just it, it, they just don't work out like the way that you thought they were going to um and i think so i think if you're going to do any of these like hard things like go out there and like you know just kind of work through things like go to go to good clip but like not all out you're not racing yet kind of like figure out what the scene is and then you come back and you do it for real um like all the times that i've been successful and either it be like my long distance trips like so like this is a great example so before i went, before i did the alaska yukon expedition in 2010 i was up in alaska the summer before and I was up there for like six or eight weeks. I did the Alaska Mountain Wilderness Classic. I like did this cool route around the Kenai Peninsula because I wanted to get like a lay of the land and kind of see how like Alaska worked. And there would be, it would have been impossible for me to have done the Alaska Yukon Expedition if I hadn't spent the summer before kind of like figuring out what the deal was up there. Okay. 
This is good. This is an amazing uh, answer because I asked, you know, this is a gear and technique for ultralight movement podcast. And the answers to this about what people should be doing is really about not gear. It's not about the stuff. Mm. It's about your knowledge. So you're, there's three answers here. Train your systems in advance. Alan said mentorship. Find someone who knows what they're doing. That person probably isn't on Instagram. And then check it out in advance. Get the lay of the land and so you can practice your system in advance with the perfect conditions, appropriate conditions. This is good. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm a big advocate of the shakedown trip, um, you know, and I'm a big advocate of training and the gear you're intending to use. You know, I mean, if you're going to do a long hike, do all your hikes in the same socks and shoes that you intend to wear on your through hike. Try and mirror the terrain as best you can, the amount of elevation gain and loss. Try and carry about the amount of weight that you think you're going to carry in the pack, you know, so you've just taking all those out of the equation because there's going to be a lot of stuff that you can't plan on that's going to happen. And what you don't want to end up is overburdened with a, a bunch of shooting yourself in the foot on top of that, because that's what's going to overload you and possibly make your trip not successful. That's good. I like this. It's not less about the just buying the lightest whatever and more about educating yourself, training yourself for the specific situation. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that, um, so we're give, this is good advice. What Alan is saying is like spot on. It's a little easier to say it, though, like from – you know, wherever Alan is and we're in your kitchen here in March. And it gets harder to like do those shakedowns when you're planning on like leaving your life for five or six months. <laughs> like, there's like, you're yeah. trying to work, you're trying to dehydrate, you know, like a hundred dinners, you're uh, trying to get out of your lease, you're trying to figure out what you're gonna do about healthcare or whatever it is. It's like kind of life gets in the way sometimes when you're like, prior to these big trips and then you just and then you have no option but to just to go for it which is not ideal but we just need to be also be realistic too about in other words, the, 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 what can the happen basic the required preparation just sucks all the time yeah so you don't really get a chance to, yeah. to shake it down right interesting yeah. okay yeah. i can appreciate it like you know like right now i'm already training for you know guiding in utah and alaska like i'm already you know out of my local parks with the you know, a 20 pound weight vest on and, and, you know, um, it's, it's getting ahead of the power curve on this, especially if your life is busy is super important. You know, okay. do not wait until the last minute. Okay. That's good. Oh, and Peter and I did rim to rim to rim alt, which required swimming back and forth across the Grand Canyon. We bought these particular type of wetsuits and these particular type of dry bags and a way to tow it. And we went down to Boulder Creek, which is sort of weird, and put all our gear on and jumped in Boulder Creek. Kind of a strange look, but we knew it was going to work. Okay. But you weren't, but you weren't successful the first time you went down to, and tried to do that route, right? We swam it very successfully. that that brings up a whole new topic which is the definition of success for another podcast for another podcast and of course pack rafting is the same thing we went into canyonlands we bought these these pool toys for pack rafts we took them out into the local reservoir and started paddling around the pack raft to practice pack raft paddling 
is the Colorado River wasn't the ideal place to do it. So your advice, I think, is very good. Any Thank closing you. thoughts? You got it? That's it? Everyone's good I, to go? I actually have one closing thought. Okay. I could. Yeah. You, you don't have to include it. Um, I just like go back to this, this fear thing, you know, that fear is a huge motivator for people to not end up doing things or taking more gear than they need. And, and the closing thought is what if you spun that around 180 degrees and looked at your trip, like what sort of amazing things are going to happen and how, how much I'm going to enjoy it. Um, and I've got a feeling that if you were able to make that mental 180 degree turn from a fear base to a sort of more anticipatory, successful mindset, I've got to believe that that's, that's going to lead to a better trip and better performance. That's a good closing thought. We'll quote that in the show notes, Alan. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. And be sure to look on the written notes so you can see these two people's website. If you want to get into this, going to their websites is by far the best way to do it. They have complete gear lists and trip reports. And uh, Andrew Skirka and Alan Dixon, thank you very much.